You are listening to a Himal South Asian podcast. In late May this year, Pakistan security forces fired at a procession of activists in the Kar Kamar area of North Waziristan, which killed several protesters. The procession was part of the Pashtun Tahfuz movement, or the Movement for the Protection of Pashtuns. Also known as the PTM, the movement has been seeking accountability for extrajudicial killings and disappearances during the war on terror in Pakistan, and has also demanded the removal of landmines. What are the roots of the PTM, and why is the Pakistani state suppressing a non-violent movement for civil rights? In this week's Himalayan interviews, we talked to Sara Eliazar and Sher Ali Khan, who did a long-form reportage on the PTM movement titled "Anatomy of a Political Moment" for us last year. The story has since been nominated for the True Story Award 2019. In this conversation with our editor Anuhita Mujumdar, they update us on the government's recent crackdown on the movement, the impact of the global war on terror on the Pashtun community, and the censored coverage of PTM in Pakistan's media. Sara Eliazar and Sheera Ali Khan, welcome to the Himal South Asian podcast. Thank you uh, for having us. Uh, it's just an honor to be a part of uh, Himal's podcast series. Uh, it's really good you could join us from uh, Austin today to talk about a story that you wrote for us uh, a year ago. Uh, in fact, we published in June last year about the Pashtun Tahfuz movement. Uh, we wanted to talk to you to see what is happening in Pakistan because. In recent uh, weeks, there has been a crackdown on this movement. Could you tell us uh, what the situation is? Yeah. So uh, the recent crackdown that you're talking about, you're mentioning, happened on May 26th. It was a Sunday. Um, Ali Wazir and Mohsen Dawer, uh, two MNAs in the Pakistani National Assembly, um, elected from Fata. Uh, they were on their way to Datakhel. This is the town in North Waziristan to join a protest, join a sit-in. Against uh, reports of torture and cruelty by soldiers, there was allegedly a, a situation where a woman's le- arms were broken by a soldier, and they were all on their way to protest against it. They were stopped at the Kharkamar uh, checkpoint, mm-hmm. and they were told that they are not allowed to move beyond that checkpoint. But consider this: these are hundreds and hundreds of people on their way. They're angry. and their subject of their ire is telling them that they can't move past that checkpoint so they went ahead anyway and the next thing we know um the military opened fire on the protesters uh there were reports that the protesters themselves were armed um none of the videos that we've seen or that have been circulating on social media corroborate any of that but that is the official uh, statement at the moment of the attack uh we were told that three people were killed at the checkpoint within hours the people who were in the protest themselves uh updated on social media that it had gone up to 20 uh, up to 13 today uh there are unverified reports that the number has crossed 23 so this is um, they're calling it the kharkamar massacre and rightly so over 40 people injured uh over 20 killed um and dying because of the curfew so it's pretty bad this crackdown however uh was followed by another slew of um arrests uh, of opposition leaders in pakistan in the following weeks 
And so right now, I would say it's pretty much a state of emergency in many ways. There is still a curfew that is underway in North Waziristan. Uh, we read news that three children had died of starvation because uh, access to medicine, food, uh, basic amenities has been suspended since uh, the Kharkamer um, attack on May 26th. And um, that's those are the conditions under which uh, the residents of North Waziristan celebrated Eid and the last um, you know days of Ramadan as well. And, and that's why it's so tragic and so important to raise this issue right now because it's happening in Pakistan. People are dying. And, and this um, is just one of the worst tragedies that has happened uh, this year. Yeah, I'll just add on that. Uh, I think, uh, I think uh, the developments that took place, uh, some of it was expected. I think uh, the nature of the movement, the amount of support it, it gained. And there are certain uh, political machinations which were taking place in the backdrop. One was that the tribal areas, or FATA as it was called, uh, was recently uh, made a part of the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa uh, province, and is is and it's the main province from where uh, the current prime minister Imran Khan was elected from. Uh, the uniqueness of the movement was it started in kind of a spontaneous manner, and it mobilized uh, on a mass level uh, Pashtun youth. Pashtun working, uh, working class people uh, who had been displaced by war, uh, who had been discriminated against uh, due to a, a variety of reasons. Uh, Pakistan has of course seen a lot of uh, democratic protests and movements, but this particular uh, movement seems to be uh, quite uh, special in the way that it has uh, challenged uh, previous boundaries. Could you talk about uh, the importance of the PTM movement? The, P the PTM has been written about as a civil rights movement, as a human rights movement, as a movement for the rights of ethnic minorities, as a movement for the rights of war-torn, displaced people, and it's, it's all of that. It is so horizontal and widespread and, you know, like mobilized in so many ways and very, very organized at the very local levels at the same time. Mm -hmm. So former Senator Farid al-Ababa recently uh, wrote an op-ed in the Friday Times about, uh, you know, like it's titled In Search of the Truth at Miram Shah to see what exactly happened with the Khankar massacre. And, um, you know, he talks about like how the PTM began as a movement against, you know, official narratives, official narratives of extrajudicial killings, for example. Um, in December 2017, uh, Nakibullah Mesud, who was an inspiring model, he ran a cloth shop in Karachi, uh, was picked up by SSP Rao Anwar and was killed um, and labeled a terrorist. Uh, sto reports on the ground suggested that they were looking, the police were looking for extortion money, but that's how easy it was for them to term a Pashtun person a terrorist and kill them and get away with it. And, you know, like the fact that Rao Anwar is still not in prison, he's still out, and nothing ever happened to him <laughs> says a lot. And, and that's uh, sort of like, you know, where PTM begins in response to these official narratives. Uh, in, in January 2018, uh, 
the the protest against Nikibula Mesud's murder blew up and thousands and thousands of people joined the uh, Mesud Tahfuz movement at that time it was called uh, their long march to Islamabad where they sat for over a week yeah and were joined by uh, politicians by everyone all the journalists attended it um Asma Jangir gave her last uh, speech ever there before she tragically passed away a few weeks later and 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 everyone from the politicians to the military at that time admitted that whatever they were saying had merit and was true as you said the ptm movement started as uh, something which was more localized but then it seems to have spread and uh, you mentioned horizontality sara can you explain that a little bit more because it seems to have gone beyond its geographical area it seems to have gone beyond the pashtun community there has also been some support for it from the mainstream political parties as well as a larger section of uh, pakistan's progressive civil society so when i use the word horizontality i mean to sort of like point at the the way it's structured so it's not in a very you know like organized hierarchical organization sort of a format with uh, you know it, it's not a political party right it's not an ngo it's not it's not uh, i mean it doesn't have a governing body of sorts it's 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 a movement and and that means it's everyone's to claim and so when people realized that there that this isn't just localized these are experiences that are shared over a certain geographical space and in this case the pashtun ethnicity and the pashtun have been talking about how they have been uh, uh, racially profiled in the media in movies and so on as terrorists and i've been in touch with uh, the diaspora the pashtun diaspora uh, people who left fata uh because of the drone strikes because of the war on terror and moved to other countries where they now hold uh protests in solidarity with ptm and a lot of you know like the ptm's been attacked a lot for having international funding and like foreign funding <laughs> you know those like typical buzzwords uh that are used to discredit anything that the establishment doesn't want to hear um but these are genuine people and they have heartbreaking stories of why they left their homes and why they protest now so i mean there's a, a lot to say about you know how the ptm has managed to amass such a huge following in such a short amount of time but it's mostly the fact that their experiences and the way that they talk and share these experiences are so visceral real and uh you know felt by thousands of people that they resonate so clearly with everyone and do you see this as an important turning point in pakistan's polity i i think i think it is i think i think uh, uh the reason is is because of the conscious leadership and there was always due to the afghan war there's always been a duplicitous role between uh the state and uh, the uh, the the religious actors there and signing in on the american war on terror uh was a huge mistake which even imran khan uh also at one point uh used to also uh recognize um but i think i think what is more important is the tactics they've used and and sort of the courage they've shown and i think no movement can sustain itself without that sort of courage that willingness uh 
to uh, to stand up to immense pressure and uh, create ruptures in how we uh, conceive of alternative ways. Uh, and and I think that's what we were trying to, uh, you know, explain through our piece was that, you know, something that started from basically, uh, you know, uh, a study group or a small uh, group of students uh, in D.I. Khan, that commitment to continually uh, attempt to be heard. Just to go back to what you were saying, uh, Shair, about uh, the duplicitous relationship between the state and religious actors, could you briefly explain what you meant by that? Uh, starting in the 80s, uh, the American-backed dictatorship uh, under General Zia al-Haq, uh, they were a part of the Afghan war, uh, and which was pretty much funding the Mujahideen and uh, other sort of groups uh, through the tribal areas for a long time. And, uh, you know, eventually the 90s came, Taliban was formed in uh, Afghanistan. But I think the major, major point has always been that the tribal areas have been utilized to fight other people's wars. And whether it's in Kashmir, sending the tribal people into Kashmir, or whether using them against uh, uh, using them in Afghanistan against the Soviet government, and uh, there's always been a linkage between the Islamization and these non-state groups. Um, and I think for that reason, you saw always a double policy in play, uh, and. And then there was also sectarian wars. There were various wars. And when we say that the people who support the Pashtun Tahafaz movement are, are sort of a children of those wars, uh, it's literally the case. I mean, uh, I mean, the tribal system has uh, underwent so many transformations due to the Afghan war, due to the rise of drug, uh, drug and sort of uh, gun trade. You saw the role of the Malik sort of uh, decrease and the state's relationship to Fatah changed significantly in the 80s as the political administrator was less involved um, in sort of engaging with those tribes and you saw new power hubs sort of form and when they when they talk about uh, these groups they 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 see them the Taliban and the state as two uh, two people that have oppressed uh, oppressed them, and uh, and what do we mean about that? Uh, in two thousand, in, in the early two thousands, you saw a lot of Maliks, uh, meaning the tribal elders, killed and uh, killed through war, and then moving forward, you you see operations. Uh, take place in Khyber uh, Pakhtunkhwa province of Malakan division, where you see, uh, you know, the state having an alliance with the Tariqe Taliban. Uh, so there's there's a huge history about, uh, you know, the war on terror and, you know, what people from the Pashtun Tahfuz would call the terror of war. And there has been limited, you know, attempt by the Pakistan establishment to even consider, you know, discussing these issues. I think, uh, you know, we talk about drone strikes. Uh, 
and things like that. Uh, there's been a, a you know a lot of academic research on Fata, uh, and it was basically a torture chamber of sorts, and uh, you know where you did you you had limited mobility, uh, you had check posts on every, and it was a war zone basically, and and. You know, the aerial bombing, uh, drone strikes, all these things added up into uh, a whole host of injustices. You know, I think what you're uh, mentioning about uh, uh, historical continuity of the relations of the state with that area, the role of the American government, the Pakistan government and the Taliban, I think it's really important to mention that uh, there has been a continuity because I think for a lot of people, the relationship between Taliban, the American government and Pakistan was kind of a self-contained uh, time capsule which happened during the Cold War. But what you're pointing out here is that it has continued now uh, during the war on terror. Uh, but many yeah. people would uh, find it puzzling because whereas the during the Cold War, the war was fought in Afghanistan and therefore perhaps didn't impact Pakistan quite as directly. Right now, this is very much within Pakistan and many would wonder why Pakistan state is allowing its own territory to be used in this manner. Um, Al Jazeera uh, made an interesting uh, short explanatory video on this very question recently in which they talked about how America's war on terror in Afghanistan pushed out a lot of the militants into Fatah, which is where the training camps began, uh, you know, during the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan at that time. So the camps of the militant training camps have existed in Fatah ever since, since the 80s. And this is something that former dictator uh, General Musharraf has also uh, talked about in many of his interviews, that we created Fatah as a nursery for militancy. We were the ones who made it um, militant. So when the war on terror began, um, a lot of the militants from Afghanistan came and settled into Fatah. The fact that the border was porous, the terrain was harsh, uh, there is no uh, development in these spaces, and it's just so easy um, for anyone to get away with anything. So a lot of safe camps were uh, built during that time, and Fatah became uh, deeply sort of militarized that way. A lot of my interviews uh, recently on, you know, like Fatah under uh, drone warfare, for example, reveal that the people there were terrified. They were terrified of the Taliban in the markets, the Taliban coming to their homes. They were terrified of drones. They were terrified even more so of military operations because the military operations would mean raising entire villages and towns to rubble. And that is what happened. So there is a lot that the people there have gone through simply because the state had certain ideas and plans for what that space could mean for them and their larger politics. Yeah, and it's important to remember that uh, Pashtuns make up around 15% of Pakistan's uh, population. And, uh, you know, since 2003, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, allied militants, you know, military operations, you know, tens of thousands of Pashtuns have died. And, you know, and 
these were the hotbeds where the actual war was going on. And I feel that this was a failure of news reporting at that time and sort of, uh, you know, the lack of information. And I think I think the campaign's initial demands, and I, I think it has expanded to a certain extent, but the main demands are are that these campaigns are for an end to illegal killings, forced disappearances, harassment by security forces, and accountability for their losses, and uh, and also basic things like clearing the landmines and those those things. So what you're pointing out uh, here, uh, Sarah and Cher, is that uh, the response of the state has been to target the larger civilian population, but not really take action against the violent extremists, thereby putting the population at the mercy of violent state repression as well as the extremist groups. Mm-hmm. That's what the PTM claim. That's literally the heart of their... Uh, grievance. The state can never endorse this narrative. The state so far at its kindest has endorsed their demands that it says are genuine because the PTM has been very careful from the very beginning to emphasize the constitutionality and the, the, uh, the constitutionality of their demands and the fact that all they're looking for are equal civil rights and liberties as the rest of the people in Punjab, in Sindh, and other parts of Pakistan. Yes, I found that quite puzzling because in the same conference where I think uh, the military spokesperson was saying the PTM is anti-national, anti-state and the time is up, uh, he was also recognizing the justice of the demands and saying that the state was trying to address them. So on what grounds are they actually being declared anti-national? Because they're because they're pointing at the military's complicity in in the entire mess that they find themselves in. Yeah, we probably wouldn't be hearing about uh, this movement had it not been happening under a certain set of circumstances. And recognizing that, I think that one thing is is that the war on terror has expanded within Pakistan. You know, if the drone strikes increase the ability for the global war on terror to occur in a certain way. Locally, we have seen that occur into various other facets. It's one into the campuses. It's one into the factories. It's one into uh, it's one one into those spaces uh, which which uh, historically were seen as uh, autonomous. Now the the battle for the state is not external that a threat, but it's actually internal. And within that, you have professors being picked up, you have activists being picked up. Um, you know, uh, in, in the case of PTM, it, it, they've had many people picked up uh, across the board. And in some cases, uh, you know, it, those disappearances have been for longer periods of time. But you have seen, you know, an increase, you know, a sort of what I would call the the war on terror increasing into everyday life and everyday spaces. And I think that is what sort of uh, makes uh, PTM so potent. And the fact that they aren't nationalist in a traditional sense, uh, they they do value uh, cross-ethnic alliances. They they supported the Hazara sit-in. Uh, you know, they've engaged with a lot of left groups. They've, um, 
you know, they've tried to uh, welcome as many people as they can. Uh, and I think that and they've sort of tried to resolve old tensions, uh, which uh, which uh, did not allow people to come together. And I think that is because of uh, the fundamental change in politics that's taken place over there. And they also have received support from mainstream political parties to some extent, have they not? I mean, it emerges emerges out of the failures of these mainstream political parties, right? Uh, the the sort of pro-establishment politics of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, which was embodied by the pro, uh, you know, uh, ANP or PTI. PTI was one of the first parties to actually speak out against the war on terror. Right. And one would argue uh, much of the support that came in the current elections was due to the fact many of PTI youth uh, members and many of PTM's main office bears were from PTI. Right. And in fact, Imran Khan's political party or uh, Pakistan Tariq and Saaf did not even uh, field an opposing candidate against the, uh, uh, you Ali know, Wazir. against Ali Wazir and Mohsen Dabur, I think. No, no. no, Ali Wazir only. Previously, uh, we had a lot of pro-state, anti-American, pro-Islam sort of politics. And now you have a political movement which is openly advocating for humanist policies, uh, you know, anti-war, anti, you know, anti-oppression. So it's it's a very different sort of uh, context of the moment. Um, I think what Anahita is trying to point out here is also, uh, if I'm not wrong, toward Bilawal Bhutto's recent statements about the PTM. Uh, yes, and also I think you had written about how the mainstream political parties did uh, support the rally in Lahore earlier. They weren't supporting the rally in Lahore per se. So what I so uh, what I wrote what we wrote in the story was that when uh, the movement first began and when the when the Mesut Tahfiz movement led a long march to Islamabad to protest against the murder of Nakibullah Mesud in January 2018 that's when all major political parties went on stage uh, expressed complete solidarity and saw in that moment uh, space to do their own politics and you know like you know get their own name out but what we've seen is complete silence later on until and until recently, which is when the entire opposition in the parliament has come under attack. And I think it's very important to look at why now mainstream political parties, including um, yeah. PMLN uh, uh, leaders, right, uh, condemning the, the attack on them. And, and there's, a very re there's, a, there's a very interesting reason for that, which is that they're, they're under attack themselves. It's also, I think, an unprecedented situation in Pakistan where the leadership of the mainstream political parties, which, as you point out, have also uh, been wanting themselves, uh, but uh, the le their leadership is behind bars. I mean, when you talk about, uh, you know, the overall high politics of, of Pakistan, uh, both mainstream political parties have seen uh, at least one is a one was convicted uh in a case which disqualified him for uh for life uh from politics and and also got him a 10-year jail sentence and uh then you have uh, 
you know, Pakistan People's Party, which is also dealing with uh, corruption cases. I would just be uh, very cognizant of understanding that, you know, there, PTM has, you know, always tried to maintain an independent stance. For me, I think I think the real thing is, is that, you know, you're seeing people mobilize on their own, take initiative on their own, every on an everyday level. Um, it's un, it's a very unfortunate situation right now, and I can't understate uh, the courage of Ali Ali Wazir, Mohsen Daver, um, all these people who have sacrificed because they're they're facing immense pressure right now. Sherry, you're talking about the courage of the political activists, but uh, I would say that it also takes immense courage for journalists such as you and Sarah to report on these stories at a time. Uh, when the state apparatus is preventing uh, the reporting and your story has also been nominated for the first true story award and rightly so because of the way you have reported the story and put yourselves also also at some risk. Uh, But can you talk a little bit about this censorship of the news in the Pakistani media because that too seems to be at an unprecedented level. Um, I would completely agree with you on that. In fact, we were following uh, everything about the PTM this whole time because, you know, like I've been researching on this. Um, the day of the Kharkamar massacre, um, the very next day, there were so many journalists on Twitter sh- talking about how nothing in the media is, is worth trusting when it comes to the PTM or when it comes to the massacre at the checkpoint. Journalists that I have followed, journalists that I know would have been sitting at the desk when they would have received that story to edit, going on Twitter and being like, do not trust what's being written. And there's a reason for that. The story that came out the very next day was the exact opposite of what thousands of people were sharing on social media through videos, through photographs, through audio recordings, everything in their power, Facebook Live, whatnot, what you saw and read the next day was completely the exact opposite. They made them look like they were, you know, the army was attacked by these goons at a check post, and that was not true. And and the, just the fact where journalists themselves come and say, do not trust a word that we've written, becomes a moment where you realize, okay, uh, where we've hit rock bottom in many ways. And it began last year when government ads were pulled out of media houses, when media houses started shutting down because there were no access to extra funds for salaries and so on. you know there has been a huge amount of crackdown on everyday uh, on on journalists and uh, obviously Pakistan has a huge history of violence against journalists but you know in the context of reporting from the north waziristan and south waziristan uh, access is very limited you know there there is a certain sen- sense of uh, despondency in terms of the role of the mainstream media. I think that there, you know, because it was such a complex issue, but there has been, you know, there are some very strong voices who have, despite all these uh, threats and harassment and all these array of problems, they've continued to uh, voice their opinion regarding PDM. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there's Asad Hashim from uh, for Al Jazeera, who's written a really good story on this. But more importantly, the BBC story that came out uh, titled "Uncovering Pakistan's Secret Human Rights Abuses," and it came out on June second. Uh, it was by the Dera Ismail Khan correspondent for BBC News, and uh, the very next day, the, the 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 ISPR came out with a tweet saying that this story is "quote unquote" a pack of lies. <laughs> and 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 that's how easy it is for uh, the state to just come out and completely negate everything that a reporter has to say about his reporting and experiences and quotations and stories from the ground. And even when we were reporting on the story on the rally in Lahore last year, there was such an environment of fear just just talking to reporters to editors about will we cover this story? How will we cover this story? How many words can be assigned to this story? uh what is the timeliness uh, the, the how, how how do we like look at the urgency of the story can we maybe shelve it for another day there was a lot of fear and there still is there are certain stories you know that you can't uh, report on if you want to be employed by a media house in pakistan and this is one of those cases and uh, mm-hmm. on that note i think we will bring this particular podcast to a close uh, today and thank you so much to the two of you for joining us uh, today for this podcast thank you thank thank you so much for more himal podcasts go to himalmag.com/podcasts